Welcome to the NutraCast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson. Thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. On a recent NutraCast episode, we had a guest on, Jeff Palmer, who challenged the status quo on preformed EPA and DHA. As we predicted, the topic stirred up some controversy. Here to continue the conversation is Dr. Caitlin Roke, GoEd's Director of Scientific Communication and Outreach. Hi, Caitlin, and welcome back to the NutraCast. Hi, Danielle. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. The last time I had you on, we discussed GoEd's new clinical database for omega-3s. So much data there. Is it safe to say EPA and DHA are the most researched dietary supplement ingredients? Yeah, as you said, the research field on EPA and DHA is absolutely enormous, and they are the most researched dietary ingredients. And we might think of others as well, but when we think about EPA and DHA, there's been over 40,000 studies published on EPA and DHA with over 4,500 human clinical trials. So they've certainly been researched from all different angles, both from human health perspective, as well as animal and cell culture studies. Other nutrients we might think of, of course, vitamin D, vitamin E, folic acid. Those are also really highly researched nutrients, but the amount of research for EPA and DHA even even tops those nutrients. Okay. And so my previous guest, uh, Jeff, he made the point of, you know, he said, Taking preformed EPA and DHA overloads the body, it creates imbalances, where if you take ALA, the body will only convert as much DHA as it needs. So what are your thoughts on that theory? What did you kind of gather from, from that conversation? Yeah, it was it was really interesting to hear the perspective from Jeff and thinking about preformed versus converted amounts of EPA and DHA in the body. And I think one thing that came to mind right away is that that Jeff is uh, correct in that there are only two essential fatty acids, which are omega-3 ALA and omega-6 LA. So this means that the body does convert ALA omega-3s into the longer chain fatty acids, EPA and DHA. And when we think about what that looks like in the body or the research about that, there's a lot of important evidence showing what happens, you could say, to EPA and DHA after it's ingested. And it can be found stored in tissues in the body. It's almost in every cell of our body, actually. And so some of the EPA and DHA, we can consume it in our diet, and that can be transformed or metabolized, as well as we can consume ALA, which can be transformed into EPA and DHA as well. And, you know, EPA and DHA don't stay as EPA and DHA. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they're even converted into specialized pro-resolving mediators and eicosanoids, which play roles in the body's inflammatory process and response. So there's a lot of things that happen in the body when we either make it through the conversion process or ingest it directly. And when we're thinking about these compounds, I think they're not unnatural to our body. They EPA and DHA exist in different food sources that we consume as well as supplements. And of course, as mentioned, they can be converted in our body as well. So they're unique in that way where we can consume them directly from the diet. And then we can also make some 
in our bodies as well, just like some other nutrients that are important to our health. So I think it's really, it was really interesting for me to think about it that way because our bodies are unique in that we can take it directly from the diet through foods or supplements, or we can make it ourselves. It is interesting. And I learned quite a bit as you and I were talking, you know, before I hit record, I write a lot and I talk with a lot of people about different dietary supplements. And so I'm far from being an expert in this. I'm still learning a lot. It's very complicated. But, you know, a couple of weeks ago when I had Jeff on, he referenced some studies conducted by doctors Bazinet and Metherol. And that research is very interesting. It, it kind of, you know, maybe helps us challenge some of our current ideas and dogmas about conversion rates and things like that. So my question is, you know, given this sizable data set that you have on EPA and DHA intake, where does this new research sit? Yeah, I thought it was really great that Jeff brought forward that research by Drs. Bazinet and Drs. Methrell at University of Toronto. And we had, uh, go ahead, had the pleasure of speaking with both of them at the recent ISFAL meeting, which was in France this past July. And I think their research is really fascinating, and we have a lot to learn from the work that their group and other groups that do similar research are doing right now. And I do think it will challenge some of the dogmas and, and knowledge that we have to date. But that's kind of the the beauty and the pain of nutritional science research is that we think we know something and we're moving forward with that information. And then new research is emerging that that changes our our mind and our perspective. And I think that as technology develops, especially these two researchers have really novel and unique ways of measuring omega-3 metabolism. And so I think we're going to learn a lot more. Something that that I think is important to note is that right now in their research models, they're using cell culture and animal models to follow the path of EPA and DHA, as well as other fatty acids throughout the system. And um, when we're thinking about a lab environment, we can do a lot to control the environment. So in an animal model or in an in vitro scenario, we can have everything exactly as we need it. Whereas when we think about humans, I mean, people are doing all sorts of different things, even in a human clinical trial, when people are asked to keep a specific dietary pattern or exercise a certain amount, there's only so much that we can really control in a human study unless we have them in the lab with us for a certain period of time. So I think that the benefit of these cell and animal models is that we can really get a better handle on the mechanisms that are going on. And then when we think about the human model, there's just some challenges and considerations for how to do that. So these labs also have developed these radioactive tracers, which are really neat. And these are, you know, not everyone is interested in being part of these studies, but there's ways that we can do this safely to follow the pathway of these fatty acids and where they go. So I think we're going to learn a lot more about where EPA and DHA actually go in the body, how much is being converted into these eicosanoids, how much is being stored in our tissues and in our cells. There's a lot to learn from this research and um, technology and innovation will be to our advantage to understand more about omega-3 metabolism. Yeah, it's really exciting right now to learn about all this research and hear what's going on. What questions do you still have on conversion rates and, and where are the data gaps at? Yeah, I think previously 
the quote or a standard that people say is that in human, typically the conversion from ALA into EPA and DHA is one to three percent. And that's what we sort of have known so far. But I think the question is, is that is that number accurate? Is it actually more than that? Is the body more efficient than we thought? And we're sort of questioning that a little bit only because there's research going on in other animals. For example, in chickens, we know that when chicken is fed flax, it converts ALA into EPA and DHA more effectively. So we're thinking about how does the human metabolism differ compared to other animals and other species? So I don't know, I can't put my finger on what the that new number might be, but it could be different than what we think. And I think importantly, from our perspective on the EPA and DHA science, I don't think it takes away from the importance of EPA and DHA themselves. I think we have such a strong and robust body of evidence supporting the benefits of EPA and DHA that learning more about their metabolism will just enhance our understanding, but but not take away from the benefits that we've seen from these fatty acids ingested from, from diet or supplements throughout all these other studies. Yeah, and just thinking about some of the research that's out there, is there any data out there on Inuit communities? The very early studies on EPA and DHA were actually done with the Indigenous communities living in in Greenland. And so that's how we actually started to figure out that EPA and DHA might be important in the diet. And these early studies showed that they compared populations of Indigenous people to populations of people living in in urban areas. And the interesting thing was that despite the diet of these Indigenous communities being high in fat, it was high in polyunsaturated fat because they were consuming a diet high in sea mammals and seafood and fish. And so the difference was that they actually had a low incidence of cardiovascular diseases compared to other populations with a high intake of fat having a high incidence of cardiovascular disease. So that really started the question as to why and what made polyunsaturated fatty acids special in this way. And so that's where this really early research was discovering EPA and DHA was from these epidemiological and observational studies done in the 1970s and 1980s that really put EPA and DHA on the map as nutrients of interest for being beneficial to our health. It's so fascinating. So Jeff, my last guest, you know, he raised some questions about the validity of the omega-3 index. I'm just curious, what is GOA's response to that? Yeah, I think the, um, you know, the omega-3 index is something that's been part of the conversation now, both in research and, and in practical sense. People can get their omega-3 index measured from, there's a couple of companies that are are doing this now. And thinking about my experience from graduate school until now, it's actually even evolved a lot since then. So what I mean by that is it's a fairly simple blood test. It can be done through a finger prick or it can be done through a standard blood draw. And there's been a lot of work through various research groups to figure out the right conversion rates and which blood fraction gives us the most valuable information. So from a measurement perspective, there's been a lot of work to clarify how to do this and how to make it consistent, both 
between blood fractions, between different blood draw techniques, as well as between different labs that are measuring this. And so that's kind of one piece of it. So it can be really interesting for people curious to know about their own data and biological data to have this measurement. It's kind of like an indicator as cholesterol or triglycerides or blood pressure might be. It gives you a sense of what might be happening in your body. And as we know, EPA and DHA are part of almost every cell in our body. So they're not only found in the blood and it, it won't tell us exactly how much might be in our brain or in our heart because that's a little bit more invasive, but the blood mm -hmm. test does give us kind of a proxy for what might be happening in our body. And I think the benefit of knowing this number or investigating this is there's been hundreds of studies now looking at the association between blood levels of EPA and DHA and different health outcomes. So a lot of research shows that higher levels of EPA and DHA in the blood are associated with more beneficial health outcomes from heart health, brain health, pregnancy and prenatal health, as well as eye health. So these four topic areas have been really robust in terms of the association between these blood levels and health outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about some of the sources, you know, that a lot of people are vegetarian, vegan. What are some plant-based options for sources of EPA and DHA? Yeah, that was another point on the conversation that you had with Jeff that I thought would be great to discuss a little bit more because there are some plant-based and vegetarian and vegan options. Probably people most often hear about EPA and DHA being fish oil. Sometimes people just call it fish oil, but there's a lot of other sources now. So something that we're seeing a lot more common on store shelves is algae oil. And so the unique thing about algae oil is that it's kind of, it's the original source of EPA and DHA. So fish in the wild are eating algae and they're using that algae and it's being built and incorporated into their bodies. And then we're using that EPA and DHA from the fish. But you can get EPA and DHA from algae directly. So some types of algae are producing more EPA, some producing more DHA. So you can look at the label to see if this algae supplement will meet your needs. But there's a lot more algae options out there, which I think is really great for consumers looking for this alternative plant-based option. And there's a whole bunch of other sources, too, that present alternative options if people are interested in exploring different things like krill oil or calanus. And there's also these new technologies that have been kind of just starting to get in front of the consumers in the market. So for example, there's a GMO canola oil. And so typically canola oil wouldn't have EPA and DHA, but they've modified the plant to actually produce EPA and DHA, which is really unique. So I think, again, technology will be on our side and creating more options for EPA and DHA sources that might be an alternative to fish oil or for someone who's vegetarian and vegan, algae oils really a lot more available. And this will be on the store shelves in the omega-3 section if people are looking to try something different. Good to know. What is the overall consensus on sort of these GMO canola oil type things? I think that there's a lot of fear still around GMO products. I think there's some good information that's out there about what GMO actually means and what consumers should 
know about it just personally from my perspective there's a lot of foods in our food supply that wouldn't exist without technology from GMO innovations and so the company that's working on these GMO canola products I think they're doing a lot of great work both in human nutrition as well as in aquaculture so thinking about yeah how can we provide an alternative source of EPA and DHA to people as well as potentially as a source for fish feed so instead of fish feeding fish maybe in the future we're going to see more plant-based options feeding the fish in our farmed fish and other supplies. Interesting. Definitely something to keep our eyes on. So we kind of mentioned this a few minutes ago, but the last time you were on the NutriCast, we discussed GoEd's new clinical study database for omega-3s. How is that going? Yeah, and thanks for asking about that. And um, hard to believe that now we're kind of a year and a half into this database being fully available to some of the GOED members as well as to others. And what we talked about at the beginning is that with so much science, we see new studies published, if not every day, every week. So part of my role is to scan these studies for relevance for GOED members and science committee. So we keep a research team that works with us and they're continuing to evaluate and update the database to keep the evidence as up to date as possible. And now that the database is kind of up and running in this way, we're able to do more translation related efforts too. So last year and this year, we've started what we're calling the Illuminate the Science webinars. And so we present on a topic Last month, I did one on inflammation. So we share some information about inflammation and how it relates to EPA and DHA. And then we use the database as an example to show what the research might look like when you're actually searching for it. So some topics like inflammation, when we think about it generally, we can do a search on inflammation and research. But when we're thinking about it from a human clinical perspective, it challenges us to think about how is inflammation actually measured? So how would a researcher measure inflammation in a human study? So what biomarkers are we looking for? What changes are meaningful? So thinking about how we can use the database to help highlight this science and, and bring it forward to both researchers as well as the industry. We've also done some reports for GOED members. So one that was really a new topic for me actually was on skin health. So we published a report on psoriasis and a report on dermatitis because we are hearing a lot of people were interested in knowing the relationship between EPA and DHA and skin health. So we wanted to look at the research and see what there was to say. There's so many things on the market from skin creams to supplements and it's just breaking through some of the, the fog to figure out what the science actually says. That's fascinating. What did you learn about that? Is there a relationship between omegas and skin health? Yeah, what we know for sure is that, as I had said a couple times earlier, but EPA and DHA is in almost every cell of our body, including our skin cells. And an analogy that I just heard recently that I really liked, so if we talk about the cell for a minute, and then I'll talk about skin health broadly, but someone referred to EPA and DHA um, like a newspaper. So let's say the newspaper is laying flat on the table. This would represent the cell membrane without EPA and DHA. And then when you open up the newspaper, now it takes up a 
pretty large amount of space. So EPA and DHA kind of help to open the membrane, which allow things to flow more easily between the cells and for signals to move more effectively. So when we think about skin health, you know, the, the glowing and the soft skin and whether these mechanisms actually relate to these consumer outcomes is still yet to be determined. But when we think about it from a clinical perspective, what we saw from psoriasis research was that people who have severe psoriasis or clinically diagnosed psoriasis, there do seem to be benefits in the human clinical trials with EPA and DHA intake. And from the dermatitis perspective, actually what we found was that most of the studies have been done in children. So a lot of these studies, the mothers are supplemented during pregnancy and they're looking at the infants for allergy outcomes, one of which being dermatitis. And so it was, a, it was harder in that case to actually determine if there was an effect because it's part of a huge plethora of allergy-related markers and so we didn't see as strong evidence there, but it was really in a small population group and something that I think is worth investigating further to see if we can tease out some of these effects or, or if dermatitis was a primary outcome, maybe we'd be able to look more specifically at, at the effects and the dosage needed for a change to be seen. Interesting. I mean, you hear about omegas for cardiovascular health and blood pressure cognitive function, but I, I don't think a lot of people necessarily think about it for skin health. So that's, like you said, worth investigating. Yeah, I think we hear a lot of people, you know, our pets are part of the family. And so mm -hmm. there's some, some people that will feed their pets omega-3s or salmon oil. And that really is anecdotally, and some research has shown that it enhances the the softness and the gleam of the coat and reduces some of the itchiness for pets. So I think people are thinking, okay, well, if it works for uh, Fido, maybe it will work for me too. And so I think it challenges us to think about, okay, well, is it oral intake that's going to show a benefit or is it a topical application? And when we go, I don't know, when I go to look for a skincare product, I'm extremely overwhelmed by the number of choices and the ingredients. Mm -hmm. And when we see omega-3 on the labels, or we have to also be conscious of, you know, there's multiple types of omega-3. So what is the actual ingredients? And I'm not sure the evidence is still evolving whether topical application is effective or whether oral ingestion is really effective. So, yeah, I think, again, we're kind of going into these new and emerging areas, but I think the research might go in these directions to try and meet some of the consumer interest areas. And maybe we're going to see some benefits, whether for general outcomes or more clinical outcomes, or maybe not, but we really need some well-designed clinical trials to get a better understanding of this topic area. Definitely. And before I let you go, what's next for GoEd? Yeah, I think we have a pretty busy fall season coming up. So if anyone is attending any of the upcoming trade shows, Vita Foods Asia, Supply Side West, GoEd will be at those. We're also attending the European Nutrition Conference, FENS, and that's in Belgrade, Serbia. So a couple of us will be going there to talk about omega-3 science. We've been posting on LinkedIn as to where we're going to be. So I think that's a 
that's a few places where you might find GoEd in terms of conversations and projects. And yeah, in terms of what we're working on as a small team, we keep really busy. There's a lot going on from the science side. We're always making sure we're up to date on technical and regulatory and supporting our members with any questions in those areas. And yeah, trying to meet and get to know as many people in the omega-3 industry as possible. So we keep, our small team keeps extremely busy. A small but mighty team. I'm looking forward to seeing you at Supply Side West. Dr. Caitlin Roke, Director of Scientific Communication and Outreach at GoEd. Thank you so much for joining me here on the NutriCast to continue this important dialogue on omega-3s. Thank you so much, Danielle. Always happy to talk about omega-3s. If you like what you just heard, you can subscribe to the NutriCast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head to NutriIngredients-USA.com for even more Nutri-related content. Thank you for listening. I'm Danielle Masterson. As always, I'll catch you here on the NutriCast next week.